welcome to The Feminist Shift. Hello and welcome to The Feminist Shift podcast, the podcast that takes a deep dive into issues affecting Waterloo Region and beyond. We're your hosts, Jen Gordon, and I'm Roz Gunn. You definitely left out the word feminist in the intro. I don't know. Did I really? <laughs> We're just talking about issues relevant to Waterloo Region. It's, it's fine. But I figured, what the hell? If they don't know we're feminists by now, I don't know how else to help them. We're <laughs> called feminist shifts. We got these. Come on. People can assume the intro stays as it is. <laughs> so, Ross, tell me what's new at YWCA Cambridge. What is YWCA Cambridge up to? Well, we are up to so much. Obviously, there's whole a whole bunch of advocacy around childcare still because it is currently uh, almost the middle of February 2022, and Ontario is the last remaining province or territory mm-hmm. to get a childcare deal, and we are pretty bummed to say the least. So that has been, um, yeah, that's been preoccupying me for the last, uh, well, over a year now, I think. What about you? <laughs> So our Network of Neighbors program, uh, which is the training program that we have uh, around violence prevention uh, that neighbors can take, uh, it got renewal funding through the Canadian Women's Foundation uh, Shockproofing Communities Grant. So that's going to be ramping up in a really big way. um, And we're going to be doing tons of training offerings and other things going on this year, which I'm pretty excited about. Um, And then uh, we've partnered in with the City of Kitchener um, around the Building Resilient uh, Cities Speaker Series. It was great. Sorry, Mr. (laughs) Um, you know uh, how we can go about our urban planning and our city building and experiencing um, the city in a different way and uh, that actually is what brings Leslie Kern into our orbit um, in KW uh, for the moment as she was one of the guest speakers or the first guest speaker of that series and is now going to be joining us today to talk further about some follow-up from that conversation. Mm -hmm. I have so many questions. I'm not going to ask them all, but I wish I could. Uh, Her book, uh, Feminist City, A Field Guide, is incredible. Everybody, you must, must read Leslie Kern. Uh, But yes, okay, let's, uh, let's dive in here, shall we? So today we're going to be building feminist cities with Leslie Kern. Uh, So what we did was pull two personas based off the advocacy work that is central to both Ross and I, as well as our organizations, YW Kitchen Waterloo and YWCA Cambridge. And we're going to uh, build a city that reflects those lived experiences with the notorious uh, Leslie Kern, who's making splashes in Kitchener-Waterloo right now through uh, her talk with the Building Equitable Cities speaker series and with the city of Kitchener. Uh, So we're going to throw out traditional things that get taken for granted, weave in some synergy of design, use, and ease of life, and think about how urban cities can start to show up for women instead of women flexing to adapt to the way things just happen to be. So our first persona is going to be the caregiver, followed by looking at sort of safety and inclusion in the city when it comes to marginalized women, uh, particularly a scenario that came out of some recent research we've been doing with some of the street and 
involved women uh, who utilize the YWKW's emergency shelter. Uh, so Ross, I'm not going to lie. Uh, I spent the better part of high school um, in rural Northern Ontario creating Sim Cities, uh, and I was pretty darn good um, as a city builder and as mayor of my Sim Cities. So I think I'm actually going to be really good at this task. So, um, you know, what can I say? I had Sims and I never got the hang of it. I think I just don't have a game brain. <laughs> I don't know. That's yeah. That's my excuse. Yeah, I'm just going to be a resident, a passive one. Um, in any case, uh, I'm so excited to be speaking with Dr. Leslie Kern today. And I have to say, as a longtime and fervent feminist, I'm really embarrassed to admit this, but a lot of points Kern makes in her absolutely brilliant book, Feminist City, A Field Guide, shocked me. I think we've all heard about how office space temperatures tend to be set to levels that are typically more comfortable for men and that women often find themselves freezing cold in these spaces. But I'd never really thought about how significant it is that the temperature of a building is only one tiny piece of a whole nebulous system built by and for men. Everything from how snowplow routes prioritize men's needs over women's current points to the fact that often residential areas and school zones are among the last places to be plowed because main roads and drivers are prioritized. My arms ached reading Kern's description of dragging a stroller filled with the day's groceries and a child across a snow-choked sidewalk through Toronto, and I can't even imagine trying to use a wheelchair. But enough about how I feel about how cities fail women. Uh, let's dive in with Dr. Kern. So, a little bit of a bio first. Leslie Kern is the author of two books on gender and cities, including Feminist City, Claiming Space in a Man-Made World. Kern's research has earned a Fulbright Visiting Scholar Award, a National Housing Studies Achievement Award, and several national multi-year grants. She's also an award-winning teacher. Kern's writing has appeared in The Guardian, Vox, Bloomberg City Lab, and Refinery29. She's also an academic career coach, uh, where she helps academics find meaning and joy in their work. Kern's next book project is An Intersectional Guide to Gentrification, forthcoming from Between the Lines Books in 2022. Uh, I'm very excited about that because uh, what I have read about what you have to say on gentrification, Leslie, is also mind-blowing, this concept of how it's privatized security and safety. Uh, just absolutely brilliant stuff. Um, in any case, let's let you speak. So hello, Leslie, and welcome to the Feminist Shift podcast. Hi, thank you so much, uh, Roz and Jen. I don't think I've ever been introduced as notorious before, but I will happily claim that because yes, um, as I'm sure you both know, sometimes even professing the lightest of feminist ideas will <laughs> send people screaming for the hills and, and make you a little bit of an infamous figure. Absolutely, yes, we are no strangers. <laughs> Uh, so as Jen mentioned, we're going to present some common scenarios of how women interact with and move around a city, and we'd love to hear your insights into where cities fail and how they might do better. So scenario one, S is a working single mom with several kids, relies on public transportation, works a variety of hours in a retail environment, and has to take a 1.5 hour bus ride to get to and from work. And she also provides support for her aging parents who live on the other side of town. How can we build a city that supports this person's needs? And maybe you want to start by how currently many cities aren't built to support these complex needs. Um, however you want to tackle it. Sure. I mean, one of the things I think we would uh, note right now in many Canadian cities is that there is a lot of um, public transit inequity, you know, living close to the fast, convenient uh, relatively clean routes like subway routes has become an amenity, right? And those areas are really rapidly gentrifying. So people like single parents 
uh, and other low income and otherwise marginalized people find themselves pushed more to the outskirts of cities, sometimes even all the way into far-flung suburbs where the only form of public transportation is the bus. And as much as I love buses, I think we all know that there's um, tends to be less reliability, less frequency of service. You're waiting outside, you're trying to make connections. It's a lot more inconvenient than, than taking the subway. So that's one of the first thing that strikes me. Another thing would be that for people um, who do work, shift work or unconventional hours, you know, not strictly nine to five jobs, public transportation systems often uh, fail them as well in that the, the frequency and reliability of service at those off-peak hours might be a great deal less. So if this person is working, you know, a 2 to 10 p.m. kind of shift, the route home might be quite a bit longer or more circuitous because the, the transit system is assumes that that is off-peak travel and there won't be very many riders needing to go to a residential zone at that time. And of course, that favors the, the traditional idea of the male commuter, right? The breadwinner, husband and father, you know, the Don Draper leaving the, the suburbs in the morning and coming back home at night. It doesn't favor the way that women often have more caregiving journeys. It doesn't favor people who do uh, non-standard hours of work, people who are in the gig economy these days, uh, people who work multiple jobs, and so on. So those are two of the main things that I kind of notice about this scenario and think how, you know, the city as we have it set up now doesn't really serve this person very well. Yeah, and I think particularly in our community, we have hubs, right? So we we still go mall to mall and then however Cambridge works itself in there, right? Which is a whole a whole other transportation issue to uh, begin with. If you're trying to bounce between, you know, Cambridge and Kitchener-Waterloo, you might as well resort yourself to several buses and or a significant and questionable midnight walk in between uh, getting to where uh, where your last stop is and where you uh, need to catch your next bus or where, where you're going home, right? Well, I one thing that struck me in your book the, uh, was the the fact that there is actually a pink tax on transportation, and you discussed the the woman who has to drop off one child at childcare, and then the next then they have to get back on the bus, take the next child to school, and then go to work, and then on the way home from work, maybe get groceries for dinner that night, then reverse the the pickup, so pick the kid up from school, then pick the kid up from childcare, and often the bus passes that if you're buying, especially if you're buying the one time bus pass, it doesn't allow for that on off on off and then inevitably, as you point out in your book, women end up paying more for public transportation. So it's it's not even serving them, even though, as you pointed out, it's women who are more likely to be using the public transportation system. Absolutely. And in many places, those children will have to pay as well, you know, even above just something as little as the age of two. And so uh, especially for single parents, then this is an added uh, cost burden on them every day. You know, if you are commuting from the suburbs, you might have to transfer between two municipal uh, transportation systems where one pass isn't going to cut it. So you might need a pass for the town that you live in and a pass for the city that you go to work in. Um, and, and especially in Canada, you know, public transportation is very expensive here. Uh, we, we don't subsidize it very well for, for people. So yeah, that cost is a real, um, a real barrier. Uh, and women also kind of pay extra, you know, say you, you know, you need to get to daycare to pick up the kids as, as maybe as you guys know, daycare is charged by the minute when you're late. 
So maybe that means you can't take the bus and you got to call an Uber or get in a taxi and you're paying for that to go and get your, your kid on time. So multiple ways that that cost adds up for, for women. Absolutely. I, when I was living in Toronto, I had a friend tell me, you know, I probably spent thousands of dollars on taxis because I was working late and I was late to pick up my kids from daycare. So absolutely. Do you have any examples that come to mind of cities that have sort of um, figured out how to make transportation more responsive to the needs of the people actually using it? Well, or, or ideas, like basic general ideas. I think optimistically, I think a number of cities are working on this at, at the moment. So Uh, Los Angeles is engaging in a a major kind of gender equity action plan for their transportation system. And this includes looking at a variety of factors, including safety. So women often express uh, fear and experience harassment on public transit. It includes things like um, reliability and timing, because this is a big uh, concern, you know, like, like in the example that you proposed here, accessibility. So that like the physical accessibility of the system, uh, which, you know, for disabled women, but also women traveling with children, traveling, women are more likely to literally be carrying more as they travel too. So there's that factor and then cost. So fares, you know, during the pandemic, Los Angeles made their public transportation system free. So this was like a big experiment in what happens when Uh, transit is free and they're kind of gathering the data now on what people's experiences with that have been like but given things like gender wage gap and and all of that you know the the more affordable public transit is the better that's going to be for women it's funny you say that because that's exactly I don't know that it solves everything but I often wonder you know every so so many years there's um a city that does a pilot around the free transportation and then everybody starts talking about it and there's some engagement in the conversation and it never gets to the point because we look at transportation as something that either needs to create revenue or in the least case has to break even that's why routes that aren't as populated that might be critical around this woman's experience uh you know get get axed or um not focusing in on uh further away neighborhoods or one bus that comes you know in our rural areas if they have bus access it stops at seven anybody working in that rural area who's coming to the city like for example Elmira coming into the city doesn't have an option around that etc etc right Um, so I often wonder if we took away the desire to economically break even and or make money off of our transit system if that relieves us from the goals that are associated with that economic prosperity of that system or or maintenance of it and start to treat it as if it is a public service um, and in a way of people accessing um, it doesn't tackle all the inherent issues, but like all of a sudden it doesn't matter if a transfer is an hour or two hours or three hours or like, it just, it takes away some of those barriers um, with it. Now, of course, that's the, all of a sudden everybody thinks that's a great idea. Gen Z utopia, some city, um, but more practically in our community, uh, it sounds like what you're sort of saying is that we need to, um, we need, we need to tackle bus routes and understand mobility patterns better. Uh, from a gender lens, is there anything else that we could practically do um, to analyze that sort of system for the folks that might be working in that uh, um, in that realm? Well, I think we have to pay attention to, you know, the the proximity and the interconnectivity of different 
services, sites, institutions, and so on in cities. So, you know, when we have these kind of histories of like um, a single use land zoning, right, in many places, which was the sort of modernist ideal of the mid 20th century that we would divide up the city into these zones. And, you know, that would be the most harmonious for man and the environment and so on. And, you know, there was a rationale there and, and that's fine. But um, especially for like the lives of people who do caregiving work, still predominantly women, the people who do, um, you know, low income, uh, sorry, uh, minimum wage kind of service work, who do the maintenance and industrial work of the city, like, it just doesn't work for them, right? So one of the things that people value about living in cities is that things should be close together, right? You should be able to go from home to work, to groceries, to leisure, to green space, to school within close proximity. So if we're thinking about our transportation networks, we're thinking about single parents, you know, what we really want to be focusing on is how do we bring those things, if not physically closer, at least make the connections between them as convenient and seamless as possible. Um, I always think about the walkability scores that you now see on like uh, real estate advertisements and things like that and how we put so much effort into the walkability scores of these either up and coming or established and gentrified neighborhoods without necessarily sitting down and saying, okay, so for the folks that maybe don't have or, or have been pushed out into the suburbs, which is a real issue and absolutely pattern in our community. Uh, right now, even if you just look at uh, folks that can afford condos, the condos that are, are affordable are ones that are further away from uh, things like our LRT routes and our transportation routes, right? Well, you were mentioning a minute ago, Jen, kind of like the, the economic rationale of transit. And I think we, we do have to shift our thinking on that. But I, <laughs> there is, you know, an economic calculus that we could do, which is how much cars cost, not just to the people mm. who own them, but to cities, right? How yeah. much does the infrastructure that we create and maintain and continue to grow around cars really cost us? And so if we were able to save money by <laughs> decreasing our investment in all of that, then that could go towards public transportation, right? So I, I think there is, you know, I even like if that. we want to rely on an economic rationale, like th there's a way to think about it that that uh yeah shifts that that calculation somewhat the other piece of sort of the economic argument is that women make up what is it 49 percent of whatever it's like half of household incomes right and so we'd still have our gender pay gap and contributing factors to that would be the being pushed into part-time low-wage jobs not having access to childcare. and so if we did have something like a transit system that made uh it easier to get to and from your jobs uh, and juggle all of those responsibilities how much more money would that be putting back into the pockets of women and their families? 100%, yeah. So another thing that I kind of had flagged about this scenario um, that I really liked that I read within your book, but also you talked about in your chat or your presentation um, was uh, housing and how we can rethink sort of housing, not just location, but but types of housing and, and how we rework uh, care into uh, um, public spaces and things like that. So, you know, in creating this little city for this, uh, that works for this woman, what's some things that could come out of those kind of uh, um, sectors or realms? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely interested in thinking and seeing more conversations about alternative forms of housing. So we have, you know, uh, I don't know what, probably like 99% of housing development is single family housing oriented, even if it's in a multi-unit 
structure, but the units themselves are kind of designed around the idea of, of what we call the nuclear family here in, in North American society, right? And this uh, places a huge burden of care work usually onto uh, the women in that household, right? In a very, you know, individualized way, in a very invisible way. But it's not the only way to do housing. If we were to imagine and support forms of co-housing, more communal housing, um, a, a range of options like multi-generational housing, and not just within one family, but having, you know, seniors housing along with family for uh, housing for young families and so on, we might create more opportunities to kind of share some of that care work. So maybe there are, you know, people living in that co-housing um, development that, you know, walk all of the kids to school every day. And that frees up that extra half an hour for the parents who are working to get to and from where they need to go, right? So, um, you know, maybe there's communal space for cooking, right? And people share some of those uh, duties amongst themselves. So that frees up more time for people and it creates those social bonds of community and greater reliance of a kind of informal network of people to help with, you know, emergency childcare situations and, and so on. But we don't have a lot of it. Um, I think demand for it might grow in, in the future, but um, it's definitely a, a small minority of the housing picture in Canada. Yeah, I mean, I even think in a really diluted version of that, and like the surface is is the idea of these complexes and how complexes used to be uh, designed with communal space in the middle and different you know meeting areas and how um, the safety that's built within some of some of that. I mean, it goes always like all housing, um, but uh, how it lent to a sort of a community of support around kids um, and having a lot of kids just in their own socialization too, um, built in there. And I don't see a lot of that housing anymore. I'm still a little bit curious about like public spaces, what role they can play in helping to support caregiving. Like, for example, in my neighborhood, uh, there's this tiny little park. Um, it's no larger than a quarter lot. It has, you know, pretty good equipment, but like we're not talking million dollar equipment, but um, the community has come together with such ownership over that space that any kid that's hanging out there, whether their parents there or not, there's five levels of moms and parents and other folks that are watching out those kids that know those kids. And I feel like that's something that we take for granted, maybe the community organizers or the moms and the connectedness of the community. Uh, but I also wonder if we harnessed that sort of mentality into all of our public spaces, whether our larger parks that become very disassociated and have different sections, whether they would um, act differently and help support um, sort of the care, the caregiving experience, particularly when it comes to kids. And I think elderly folks too, that want to utilize those public spaces because urban cities rely heavily on those urban spaces and they tend to come down to these little pocketed areas. Um, Leslie, do you have any insights about how we can orchestrate public spaces, you know, beyond some of the, the elements of like cooking and, and other uh, places like that? Is there anything that has been Sorry, I'm roundabouting a question here. Um, I guess I'm trying to figure out like, is there anything else that could push the needle around public spaces? Because our city is like the city of Kitchener is at a point where they're looking at their public spaces and their parks particularly um, and, and strategically thinking about those. So what, what, what role can a park play or a public space play in, in supporting this woman? Yeah, no, I, I think that is a, a good question. I think we have to, you know, yeah, come, come back to this point about 
you know, public spaces are, people consider them safe and enjoyable to use when there are many people there, right? Uh, and I don't mean like a, you know, a, a massive uh, <laughs> crowd, but I mean, when there are constantly yeah. other people around. Yeah. But too often we've kind of gone the opposite direction out of fears of, I don't know, loitering, homelessness, crime, drug use, sex work, whatever. We've taken away some of that physical infrastructure within and around our parks, like places to sit and, and gather, places to play, places to cook. You know, uh, we've made it really onerous for people to do those kind of day-to-day -day activities. And that means that people don't, uh, are not out in that space maybe as much as they uh, could be. And then other people are like, well, it's, it's you know, there's nobody here, it's kind of empty, it doesn't feel safe, they don't want to go, right? It creates this vicious cycle. So I think, if you can think about both the, the physical environment, but also the kind of like programming that you have in the park, like what events do you have there? What, um, you know, music, performances, kids activities, camps, uh, seniors programs, meals uh, being served, um, you know, even things that, that are helping more vulnerable members of the community, uh, you know, all of these things can potentially be intermixed, right? Especially if we time them well and we uh, think uh, think more broadly about, yeah, just the, the range of things that those spaces could be used for. If we limit it to, well, this is just a playground, well, it's only going to be used for a few hours every day. And then the space yeah. sits empty for, you know, 20 hours of the day. Yeah. Um, and it goes beyond things like sight lines and other things like that, which I know are really big. Um, I've been on the receiving end of trying to put a community sign in a park and having to work with the, with the urban designers to try and just find a spot for this community sign. There was there ended up being only one spot with all the gas lines and other things going through. But the conversation was never, where can this be the most utilized? You know, where can this be part of the community, this communication method? It was always like, where could it be, right? Oh, we can't, you know, a very sort of functional approach. Um, and I think that's the interesting thing that like when Ross and I talk about these issues is we come at it from that experiential approach but also advocating for people who can't use this system the way the system was designed because it wasn't designed with them in mind right so we end up on the experiential side but also compensating for for those shortcomings uh, especially around topics like caregiving and how to support caregivers an amalgamation of ideas that take into account the principles and the math involved with urban design we'll call it um, as well as the social experience of, of folks and I think you talk a little bit more about that in terms of like you can hypothesize all you want but until you actually talk to someone until you talk to you know s who's in this scenario um, of trying to be a caregiver in our city <laughs> you don't know exactly what what the solutions are for that person right so while we sit here and hypothesize still there's there's an extra call that always has to happen that you know engagement's important and not just like a sign come to a meeting if you're upset about this building development or or fill out this survey kind of uh, approach which are a bit more passive well i feel like we've, we've tackled some some elements for the caregiving and some practical examples uh, the next scenario we're going to talk about is uh, um, actually coming through some research that we're doing um, with women who are uh, using uh, the ywkw's emergency shelter so the background of this research is understanding a little bit more about their experiences around violence uh, perceptions of safety how they're using their community and what sort of changes can make so that we can show up better for um, uh, for these marginalized women around those issues. So uh, this is a scenario that I have permission to sort of share, and it'll be broad enough that uh, the person can still remain anonymous. However, while I was interviewing, uh, one woman was talking to me about um, 
how she feels with COVID, but also a little bit more generally. Uh, she feels like her community has really closed in um, on her, um, her geographic community. Um, so she's experiencing homelessness. She's currently in our downtown Kitchener community. She has a sordid history of housing precarity um, in the private market. Uh, she does not have a stable income right now. Um, so she doesn't own a phone. Um, and I think kind of like the historical, like pre-cell phone days where we were keeping keys in our knuckles, um, which we still do, but you know, before you just had a phone that you could call, you know, that was, that was a really strong um, approach to women's safety um, that has a legacy and a history that shows up today. Um, still, um, uh, a phone has become sort of an essential element about how women negotiate their, their safety in a city, but also how they compensate for some of the shortcomings of urban planning and other things in a city. So she has been disenfranchised several times by police systems, including calling for her own safety, getting charged herself um, in those scenarios, as well as nobody showing up to support her. her. So she's really put her safety on the idea of having a phone or getting access to a phone, being able to call somebody. Um, so now uh, we're at a point where most, if not all the pay phones in our community are gone or not functioning. That's not unique uh, to our community. I think North America in general has, has sort of seen that uh, float through over the years. And so now she feels that she has to rely on strangers to help her if she's in trouble. Also, she's been disenfranchised by strangers and, and abused on the street and other things. So that's not an inherent safety that privilege um, would naturally get you. So that's complicated by the fact that in our public spaces, because of COVID, um, there's less people around. So even though she doesn't necessarily feel safe around people, again, it's the same mentality as the parks. More people around is an inherent feeling of more safety, more opportunities for intervention. Uh, our downtowns have really become, in, in almost all of the urban communities in one of the region, have become a sort of battleground with gentrification and developments and the displacement of folks like this woman who have found ways of being safe in those neighborhoods for decades through things like knowing how far away she is from a payphone at any given point in time should she need to call somebody to support her which might be a friend might be police might be whoever right I want to know because my advocacy Ross's advocacy what we try and do really has these women in mind I want to know what can we do to help this woman reclaim her city what do we need to do from like how can we push back against this what can we do to better plan with herself and the other women that experience things similar to her in mind well, yeah, I mean, this is definitely an example of like a very complex, multi-layered problem with, with no one simple solution. And yet at the same time, you know, noting the significance of the phone, right? An object that now many people take for granted such that we've stopped providing that access in public space is also, I think, a really key point about the, the kind of assumptions that we we broadly in, in you know policy whatever make about what people have access to or or not you know obviously a, a place like a library might be somewhere that someone can go to access like the internet and maybe phone although I, I don't know if that is likely but it, it should be but of course that's you know limited hours and and so on I, I think you know maybe in my my ideal world I would imagine that instead of um it being a situation where women like this kind of need to call for help or need to go to the space where they can get support that we might have, you know, mobile support centers that regularly kind of move through the, the downtown areas. You know, I, I would love to picture like the, you know, the, the shelter on wheels, right? Like the RV <laughs> that's going around. And some cities do actually have this to support homeless 
populations, you know, a, a place where they can come inside, have a quick meal, talk with a, somebody to, you know, see about shelter and support. They can grab a shower, use the bathroom, you know, those things that are so essential and perhaps even more so for women who really struggle with the lack of access to facilities for hygiene and so on uh, when they are, you know, street involved and precariously housed that, you know, bringing the services to people, meeting them where they are, I, I think is really a key initial intervention, but of course it's not a long-term solution, right? So then we're looking at housing solutions. We're, we're, we're looking at how do we combat gentrification and the nimbyism that often comes with it that starts to push out the services and spaces that felt safe or that offered support uh, for women like this. The need for like second stage housing for women leaving shelters. So if they're leaving, you know, from a domestic violence shelter, there's very few places <laughs> to go in between that and trying to find housing in the market system again, right? So um, to me, ultimately, you know, that the housing is the, the foundation where, where that support has to come, but thinking, okay, creatively about what we can do in the in-between time is, is also, you know, a space we could probably come up with some, some more ideas. Yeah. I have this. So, okay. So at one point in time, there's going to be a, a, you know, a tech person that's going to listen to me say this and they're going to be like, oh, oh, Jen does not fully understand this, but I'm going to say it anyways, because it's something that I've spent a lot of time thinking of. So in Kitchener, um, a number of years ago, like I'm going to say maybe like 2017, uh, they did an overhaul of the streetlights. Um, so they put in new streetlights, which actually have a bit of a broadband uh, capacity with them, right? So they talked about doing things like using this broadband capacity or this sort of internet capacity to be able to reduce traffic congestion, provide alerts if someone's water softener, toilet is running to help with water bills. Um, and I often like sit and say, like even when COVID came down and there were also inherent issues, some people could go and find their social networks and experience their community and access their community and what they need online and some people were just left with zero options like a lot of the folks that are in our shelter there's just there's nothing nothing was available nothing was open you have this little box and that's kind of where you this building and that's where you stay how interesting it would be to exercise the same sort of enthusiasm for this internet broadband to just provide free internet so even if s doesn't have a phone or whoever we're talking about in this scenario this woman doesn't have a phone she could easily have a secondary phone connect to a data plan, have the security wherever she goes and utilize her community and just sort of move forward with her life as opposed to feeling concerned about going to see a house, um, you know, going to see all of these vulnerable things. Like I don't even, like if I'm buying something online, there's five layers of people that know where I am. <laughs> you know, they're taking pictures while I'm there. Never mind if I'm trying to find housing because I'm homeless and I'm just showing up to random places, often on five or six different non-immediate bus routes, right? So, you know, maybe, maybe there's some opportunity to explore if there's potential in there. But how cool would that be just to not, for her just to be able to, to lean on that? I'd love to see that. I would love to see that too. I mean, there's so much talk of the smart city and this quote unquote smart technology, which is also, you know, surveillance technology, which that's a whole other podcast, I'm yeah. sure, <laughs> to talk about. But yeah, I mean, how are we mobilizing this capability to help those who are most excluded or who are most at, at danger? You know, I, I don't even know that that is on the radar of those who are kind of creating and, and implementing these 
Well, I, I have to think it's probably not when when our shiny moments and in, in articles and things that I remember from four years ago is water softeners <laughs> and toilets running um, and traffic congestion, right? I think there's there's a person there that is a persona that uh, that they're catering uh, this opportunity towards, right? Yeah, we're making life easier for those for whom life is already pretty convenient in the city. Yeah, exactly. And when I was so when I was reading your book. And I mentioned earlier how I was embarrassed that I, I hadn't considered so many of these these facets or these these ways of the city functioning um, and how inconvenient they are for women and especially mothers and disabled people uh, and and anyone who doesn't conform to the white cis uh, male. I what I was thinking when I was reading that was, my God, it doesn't have to be this hard. But I was also thinking if I, as like a fairly fervent feminist, like had never even considered so much, so many of these excellent points you raised, like how many other people are out there just being like, life's hard. I don't know. Pull up your, like, pull up your socks. What is it? Pull up your bootstraps, whatever. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like people don't even realize it doesn't actually have to be this hard. So is, is, is that the first piece is get on more podcasts, everybody read Leslie Kern and let's all understand that it doesn't actually have to be this hard. And then we would go and then it's, it's okay. Now city ask us what, ask us what we need, because maybe we didn't know before. If you did ask us before, maybe we didn't know how inconvenient uh, the, the bus system was for us and how much better it could have been or as an example. Yeah. I mean, I think you're pointing out, you know, some of the many layers of this, which yeah, is one that often people do experience the struggles that they have, not just in the city, but in life in general as like an individual problem, right? Or they experience it as like an individual failure or it's just something, um, it's just the way it is. And I, I have noticed that some of the feedback I've gotten about my book is people being grateful to recognize that it's not just them and they're not alone in it. And I hope that you know, people like there's a broad realization of that because it's not just women, it's not uh, just disabled people, it's not just seniors, it's not, you know, like if we think about it all together, all those people that seem to be like struggling in the city, we're the majority, you know, we we are a much greater number of people than those um, who are experiencing a relatively privileged life in the city. And so kind of recognizing those shared struggles, I think is, is key. Um, and then that other layer of like the, the kind of the, the data gap, right? That there's actually a still a profound uh, lack of information or really reliable data, both qualitative and quantitative about some of this stuff. I mean, it's not that there's nothing out there, but there's still, you know, like transit systems, for example, you know, have, it's not been, it's only been recently that many are gathering like gender desegregated data at all about ridership and things like that, right? So some of these major problems, even though researchers have, you know, pointed to them, the systems themselves don't have the data to support some of the interventions that they might want to make. So there's like the data gathering phase that, that we still really need. And then once you have that, then maybe you can, you know, talk to the people who are um, actually the, the, the practitioners, the, the policymakers, the designers, and so on, and say, listen, you know, this is, this is the story. Uh, what can we do about it, right? Um, because yeah, I think a lot of times people have just never thought of this, or they've never experienced it. And then they're like, well, show me the data and it doesn't exist. And 
the circle starts all over again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when you're, you're talking about that sort of individualist sort of, uh, I don't know, worldview that we have here, especially in the global north, I, I think you admit in your book that you, you haven't had the opportunity or the, 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 the means of examining feminist cities in much depth in other places of the world, especially the global south. You certainly give some great examples, but in in the in the research you've been able to conduct in in cities in the sort of so-called global south uh, where they that sort of protestant work ethic doesn't pervade society and make us all these neoliberal individualist automatons does it do you see any sort of general trends like where there is more of this i guess innate feeling of i have a right to to fight this oppressive system or this system that isn't working for me? Well, without wanting to overgeneralize, um, because yeah, again, it's not completely within my area of expertise, but one thing that I've noticed just by like, you know, trying to follow the, the news and, and so on is that um, in, in many places in the global South, like where there's a greater culture of like protest, right? A greater culture of like, like actually, you know, social movements that speak out against different forms of, of injustice and like a willingness to actually like take to the street and, and do this kind of thing. There's a lot of really vibrant and strong uh, women's movements and movements of the marginalized, the oppressed and, and so on that um, are pushing back against these things. And one of the things that I've I've tried to take on and I'm, I'm trying to learn more about is just the fact that, you know, even though we, our Western worldview sort of sees like global North cities as kind of the pinnacle of like urbanness and development and so on, that actually some of the most innovative and exciting things are coming out of global South cities that women there are not like silent and oppressed, that they're actually engaged in broad-based like collective movements, grassroots movements for change. And sometimes they they know they can't necessarily rely on the government or the city or the people in charge. And so they're just trying to do things, take things into their own hands and create their own, you know, collective safety, for example, or networks of, of different kinds of services. So Leslie, uh, you are the latest guest speaker in uh, a collaborative effort with our organizations, uh, Feminist Shift and the City of Kitchener, which is looking at building equitable cities and trying to sort of think outside the box in a really strategic way. Out of that, we had people that were kind of on, in, in a variety of different camps. We had some private sector folks. Um, we had public sector folks in terms of like those working within roles in the municipality, as well as community members. And some of the questions that came up for community members were around, you know, as a community member, how can I advocate? Um, and those questions, uh, we kind of talked about those in the Q&A of, uh, of your talk. But as somebody who's partnered in with the city, and I know other community members that showed up that are very passionate about their city and, and want the best for their city and want to experience their city in other ways. What are some ways that community members who are trying to support the change that, um, you know, the city of Kitchener is sort of putting on the table in terms of these talks, how can they be allies in this work? How can I be an ally to an urban planner who might want to try something different? Or, or what can we do to kind of support that work and, and start to infiltrate change? right from the inside? Such a good question. I mean, maybe, I mean, I think we all know that often, and we've probably sometimes been these voices, that the 
the the people who speak out about something are often they're speaking against something right something that they are um, opposed to in some ways and some sometimes this is you know nimbious but sometimes it's also just pointing out things that are not working right mm-hmm. um with with the intention of of it changing but there's much less likely to be feedback around the things that maybe are working like maybe you start to take them for granted or we're just not like worked up enough to send an email to an urban planner and say hey like this new Love bus that. shelter is really amazing, right? We're only going to send an email when the bus shelter is like broken or it's not there or, or whatever. So maybe that's just part of it is like actually recognizing what what is working well. I, I think, you know, another way of, of thinking about being an ally more generally in this sense is looking for the work that's already happening because often we you know, we might look around and say, oh, this is a problem. City government, what are you doing about it? But chances are there's like two or three or 10 community organizations that are already working on it, right? That that have already, like, if there's a problem in a community, people know, right? And they're trying to do something about it. So instead of reinventing the wheel or trying to come at it from, you know, your point of view first, you know, try to figure out first what's like happening on the ground and seeing if you can be, a part of that either you know with your own knowledge and labor or sometimes just like sending them some money like it's not the most glamorous way to participate but sometimes like if you have that capacity that's something you can do right like yeah. give some resources right to yeah. to groups that are already working on the problem you don't have to start a whole new group necessarily right somebody may already be doing this it's interesting because as you're talking, it's putting together another layer of uh, of this for me, because one of my favorite things is to wander into a community hack of some urban space that isn't working. So whether it's somebody puts their own little ramp on a ledge or, you know, Lego blocks in the side of a building that's crumbling, like whatever it is, those sort of those guerrilla actions, I think, too, are, are something that I, I hadn't really put into the full. I'm not saying everybody needs to go out and hack a space, but often if the people experiencing it are also trying to understand solutions to it or, or finding ways around it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those are good things for, you know, city planners, policymakers to pay attention to, right? Like if people feel they need to hack their space, then, then something's not working there. So, you know, notice, notice what's happening. One thing I want to note, just for any listeners who are like, okay, but so what is the, like, how do we actually make a city a feminist city? Like, when do we know we have a feminist city? And one of the things you specifically say in your book is that you're not presenting a blueprint for the feminist city. There is no tear down. We're not asking planners to tear down the whole city and rebuild it so that it's a feminist city. But once we realize, and actually maybe I'll read what you say, um, you say here, But once we begin to see how the city is set up to sustain a particular way of organizing society across gender, race, sexuality, and more, we can start to look for new possibilities. There are different ways of using urban spaces we have. There are endless options for creating alternative spaces. There are little feminist cities spreading up in neighborhoods all over the place if we can only learn to recognize and nurture them. The feminist city is an aspirational project one without a master plan that in fact resists the lure of mastery. The feminist city is an ongoing experiment in living differently, living better, and living more justly in an urban world. I love that (laughs) because as I'm reading your book, and I think this might be experience for others, it's like, okay, but how do we fix this? And it's, well, 
no, here's all the little ways that we are fixing it. And these are the, find those little things to glom onto and to celebrate and to, to spread. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, you know, sometimes there, there is a space for big change, big intervention. I, 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 I don't want to uh, suggest that that can never happen or should never happen. You know, like say if somebody wants to, I don't know, completely ban cars from the city, that might be an intervention. I, that's a big, that's a big deal. And I, I would stand behind that, but but yes, I mean, without it wanting to sound like a bit of a, a kind of a cop out of, of not knowing what the, the plans are, I, I think paying attention to what is happening on, on the ground and noticing that people are always trying to, to improve things for themselves and others in, in multiple ways is, uh, I think, hopeful, right, that, that this is not an insurmountable goal. Exactly. And we're not starting from zero or from scratch. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think that's actually a great place to, to tie things together, put a nice little bow on this. Leslie, thank you so, so much for speaking with us today. I can't say enough about your book. Uh, I'm probably buying it for all of my friends. Truly, truly, I'm so grateful for your work and for your time today. It's been a really great conversation. I appreciate you both uh, inviting me to your show. Thank you for joining us on the Feminist Shift podcast. You can follow our advocacy work by heading over to thefeministshift.ca or on social media under the handle Feminist Shift. You can also sign up for our email list and get notified of all of our upcoming events and workshops. Feminist Shift is a capacity building initiative between YW Kitchener Waterloo and YWCA Cambridge, funded by Women and Gender Equality Canada.